Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, September 20th, 2013. This week, episode 298 comes to you from Studio D. I'm up in Central City, Pennsylvania. Here with me at the controls is our engineer, Jessica Lawson. Hello, everybody. All right, Jess. And joining us from Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Sorry, he needs Cliff. to be unmuted first. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello, Cliff. Hello, everybody. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, will join us for the roundup today. I know he'll be interested in this show. We're going to interview today. First, we'll, of course, have our radio, IAQ Radio trivia question. We've got an interview with Dr. Ed Sobeck. We'll talk a little bit about mold investigation, sampling, some current perspectives, some new uh, equipment and, and sampling techniques, technology that uh, he's been working with. Then, of course, we'll go back to our halftime and finish with the interview and our roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Uh, before we get to the uh, interview, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IEQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Okay, Cliff. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations. To Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products, Mars PA, for being first person to identify Thomas Jefferson as the American founding father, major contributor to the Constitution, and president of the United States, who is credited with first conceiving the concept of mechanics liens in their modern form to encourage construction in the capital city of Washington. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, September 20th, 2013, has been sponsored by Triska, 
the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for today's IEQ Radio trivia question. Name the term used by indoor environmental professionals to refer to a suspension of airborne particles that contain living organisms or were released from living organisms. Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Ed Sobek. He's the director and president of Assured Biolabs. They are an AIHA accredited and CDC elite environmental microbiology laboratory. He's in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. He's a Ph.D. microbiologist with 20 years of laboratory and field experience, and he specialized in microbial contamination of the built environment. He's had quite a bit of experience in commercial and residential buildings, including health facilities and manufacturing settings, and also serves as an expert witness. His approach is kind of defined by his clients' needs, and he has developed an arsenal of molecular-based tools to solve complex microbial issues. His most recent invention is the M-Trap, which is an advanced 3D biocapture cassette for mold, bacteria, and virus. He is also active in research and is currently collaborating with the CDC on several studies, including the Atlanta Mold Project. Uh, Dr. Sobeck's PhD is from Texas Tech University in biological sciences. He did his uh, undergrad work at Cal University in Pennsylvania. Let's go, Cal. And the Department of Plant Pathology, his master's degree was from Iowa State University. I think we have some music, but let's see if it plays double or not. Hey. Growing mold in my heart. It's working. <laughs> Growing Let's see if we've got Dr. Sobek on the line here. Hello. Hey, Joe. How you doing? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing great today. Good to have you. How are things in Oak Ridge? Well, it's a lovely day. Um, we're in the high 60s, and we've been like that, you know, high 60s, low 70s for the last couple of weeks, so we're finally getting a taste of fall. It's been so hot and wet this summer. How did you, end up, in, how did you end up in Oak Ridge? That's a long story, but I was uh, I finished my uh, doctorate at Texas Tech, and I did a, a bit of a stint as a statistician over in wildlife. They needed some help uh, studying this rare turkey that's in the Rio Grande region of the country out there, and uh, so I needed to take some advanced statistics courses. I needed a multivariate, and I ended up going traveling all the way to the Czech Republic, and in the Czech Republic. I, I was only one other American there in our class, and this is where you. This is like the top, uh, top for these type of statistical analyses, the top school. And uh, he worked for a company called uh, Microbial Insights in Rockford, Tennessee, which is about 45 minutes south of here. And they were they're an environmental microbiology company that specializes in contaminants in soils, and they use bugs to bioremediate. Uh, soils that are contained with, you know, a variety of chemicals from factories and, you know, 
water, aqueducts, things like that. And uh, anyways, uh, they wanted to start an indoor air section, and lo and behold, I was there, and I was, you know, my, I came out of Texas Tech, uh, you know, studying the molds, the de- desert molds, and really specialized in that. And my work at the USDA was all with aspergillus. And, uh, you know, that was back in 2003 when the industry was really hot, and I thought, you know, this is something I want to do. I, so I went out and, and I started up with those guys. And when when did Assured Biolabs come along? Well, I was with those guys for a few years, and I decided to start my own thing. And uh, really, inception was in about 2005. I put the lab up here in Oak Ridge and started. Uh, it was you know we were Clean Air Labs before Assured Bio, and uh, it's been a it's kind of a wild and crazy ride for me as a you know entrepreneur and scientist and investigator. <laughs> but we put it all together and. Uh, it held together through the recession, and we're doing well. And uh, I'm really enjoying the work I'm doing right now and working with our clients. It's a lot of fun. Let me ask one more on the background, then I want to get Cliff in here for a moment. What is the CDC Elite Environmental Microbiology Laboratory? Is that a status or a, a certification of some kind? Well, a couple of years ago, the CDC – well, the CDC had been working on it for a while. Uh, they really wanted to standardize – and come up with ways to uh, for the laboratories to test laboratories that do Legionella testing. So CDC Elite is all Legionella, and uh, okay. so we participate in that program. And uh, what you do, if labs that participate are given so many unknowns each year, and we have to identify those using standard methods or our DNA methods, and we report that back to the CDC. So they they've been building this program for a while. Uh, it's fairly new in its inception, being released to the public. I think we were one of the first users, uh, but it's a great program. It really helps us understand uh, our Legionella analysis and quality control on that side of it. Well, let's let's turn it over to the Z-Man for a moment. Cliff? Yeah, thanks, Doctor, for joining us. It's great to have you. You know, certainly, uh, you know, we know where you learned uh, microbiology, but where did you learn, uh, you know, construction, you know, building science, and, you know, some of the other practical things that, um, you know, you, you need to use in your work? Good question. Uh, you know, when I first got into it, when I was with back with Microbial, there was a great course that uh, ACGIH used to offer. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember that. It was about 2004. It was a whole week course. And this that's really where I got started. I wanted something that would, you know, get me up to pace as fast as possible. And uh, I took that course, and there was, uh, I don't remember the people's names who were teaching it, but they really, they really did a good job. And a lot of really building-centric on that side of it. And, uh, you know, that, give, that gave me the conceptual side, understanding, you know, the understanding side from just being able to think about buildings in relationship to mold ecology. But then the truth the truth is you get your education, you got to get out there and get dirty. So it's taking on jobs and learning. And I've been fortunate enough to work on some really complex jobs throughout my career. And the great thing about that is when I go into these parts, I'm coming in for my piece, which is, the, microbi- the environmental microbiologist. I'm looking for the contamination issue. But I have engineers working with me. I have architects working with me from these companies. I have staff microbiologists working for me, with me often. 
so I learn from the people around me. You know, it's a give and take, and I learn. I think they learn as much from me as I do from them. But that's really how it comes together. I learn with each job, and I'm basically it increases my knowledge base. You got to get out in the field, and uh, that was one of the things. You know, you think about a lab director. Well, Dr. Sebek sits in his lab and runs his lab. Now I, I got to get out there and see what's going on because if I can't go out there and see it, I can't basically develop tools and technologies really are that are really needed. Uh, you just can go on these, you know, scientists sitting at the bench and come up with great things, but they don't necessarily make any sense in the real world, if you understand what I mean. Absolutely. <laughs> we all deal with it on a regular basis, but it it sounds like the key is to, to work with a good team, and that, you know, that's what we've preached for years is to get a good team of people behind you and working with you. And like you said, you were fortunate to have that that ability when you got certain projects that allowed for that, which is, you know, that's, that's tremendous. And it's, and it's great, very important, um, the building science end of things. But now I'm kind of curious with respect to, you know, we're talking a little bit about building science and then uh, the microbiology, but combining the two with respect to doing in, inspections for, for mold. Um, and, and, you know, I, I always like to kind of start with, I, I like to see people do indoor environmental quality or indoor air quality inspections, not necessarily just mold inspections. But, you know, one of your backgrounds real strong in that area, the mold. What do you see as some of the weaknesses with respect to the current inspection regimes or protocols that people are using? Well, I, you know, one of the things in, that you see a lot is inspectors to go in and just take, you know, let's pick three rooms, take a sample take a sample in each and do it outside and then we're done. And it's just air sampling. Um, that's one of the, and often the, the newer guys coming in will have that problem. You know, you, you just can't go in there and take air samples and expect to find the problem. I mean, obviously if you walk in and there's mold grown all over the walls, it's all over the drywall and carpeting and things like that's one thing. But, in these situations where you have hidden mold, and even where it's not necessarily hidden, um, I, one of the pitfalls I see is people think they can go, just trust that you can go in and take two or three air samples and be able to f make a, a decision based on that. Uh, that's not enough data. You really need to get down and start looking. And, you know, that's having tools like uh, being able to do uh, moisture meters, being, you know, doing humidity, also, just getting around, looking everywhere, getting to the crawl space. You got to go down through that. You know, you got to go into the attics. You got to, you can't just walk in and and you got to crawl around, and look for these things. It's not, it's not always evident. There's sign. There, there's a lot of sign though that you can look for and different symptoms that may be going on, especially the homeowners. You know, when you're in a residential, I talk to those homeowners because they may not know what's going on and they may have gotten on the internet and. You know how people can get, homeowners especially, get really worked up because there's so much, I would not say garbage, but a bunch of junk on the Internet about mold that can really, is the fearful side of it. And that's the worst thing is people afraid in their home. But those people, you know, the homeowners understand a lot what's going on. They're smart people, and you need to be able to talk to them and see, you know, what kind of, are they having symptoms? Obviously, we're not doctors. But, you know, those things help us uh, have an idea. And... You know, also, what do they think the source may be? And, you know, a lot of times they will help you get to that source by listening to them. Cliff. So I would say listening to the homeowners and 
getting around looking, not just taking air samples. Cliff, let me throw it over to you for a Thanks, Joe. Um, is there a difference, a real difference, between indoor molds and outdoor molds? Are they the same thing? Well, the, all the indoor molds you're going to find outdoors. Uh, what you do, what, what happens is outdoors, you know, things are kept in check. Uh, you have so much competition because there's so many species outdoors. So you have really a select group that get inside, and uh, they're related to water intrusion, humidity issues. And the big difference is their abundance inside. I mean, their concentrations can be extremely high compared to what you find in the normal ecology outside, and that's what causes the problems. You know, if you have two or three spores of, asp of an aspergillus per cubic meter of air, it's not a problem. But when you get 50,000, you know, 20,000, that's chronic and acute exposure, you know, for the occupants at the same time. And, it, and that's, that's really it. The concentrations is, is really what uh, drives it. So you're going to find those things inside, outside, but just really the concentration of those. And, you know, there's a... Uh, pretty much a subset of the outdoor that are inside. Let me follow up. If you, if, if, I'm curious. I, we have a lot of people, when I do this type of work and I find buildings where air sampling data really isn't that indicative of a problem, um, maybe there's um, very little visible mold even when you start to dig in, in the home, but you have an odor. Uh, that, that's, you know, consistent with microbial VOCs. I'm just wondering if you could comment on the role of the volatile organic compounds with respect to people's um, reaction in buildings. Well, their reaction is, you know, it's a variable reaction. Uh, I've been in situations on projects where some people just have the best noses for picking these VOCs up and the thing is, it's not a pleasant experience for them. Um, so you have a situation where even if you have low levels, you know, we, we our sense of smell is different, and some people are just really sensitive, and they will not be happy until every last bit of mold and VOC odor is gone. And it really makes you have to hunt the stuff down. I, I was in one situation, it was a 10,000-square-foot home, and, you know, you, you talk to the homeowners and you try to get as much information, but you find out things as through your investigation. And, you know, I'll be back on site on these projects sometimes two or three times, maybe five times. It depends on how complicated they are, especially whenever it's as low as VOCs and, you know, low concentrations of mold. Um, we found an area that, you know, we get to, that this has been painted over. What's, what was here before? And, you know, the homeowner comes out, well, there was mold there, and we just painted over that, you know, four years ago. Well, it's like, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? <laughs> so, you know, you get to the sources, it's, you know, it's one of those things that the homeowner just doesn't think about it, and most people don't understand microbiology like we do. So it's, you got to start asking questions, you got to dig around, and uh, those VOCs can be a big problem. I've, like I said, I've been in situations where it's very sensitive, people are very sensitive to it, and they will not go back into their house. Um, I had one situation where the lady, uh, you know, high-end home, and uh, she decided that her husband would not could not smell the mold, could not smell the, the VOCs. She could. She was very sensitive to her, made her nauseous. Well, she said her solution was to 
put an RV out in the front yard in this high-end neighborhood. Well, her husband, uh, he, he broke down after that, and uh, he brought us in, and we found the source for it. So it's interesting <laughs> how these things go. There's, uh, there's always fun stuff out there, and and we uh, we really like getting to the source and finding the problems. And those low-end VOCs are, you know, the MVOCs are, are an issue. Well, for certain people. Let me follow up a little on that. I'd like you to give me a little more, you know, I think I understand why they're there in the first place, but I've got a PhD microbiologist on here. Let's get your your take on it. Why, when do the fungi produce these VOCs? Is it during the digestion of food? Is it um, a part of their uh, growth? Is it a part of a chemical warfare between these these um, different molds and bacteria and other microbiologicals that are trying to grow? Well, you know, it's a little bit of both. Uh, definitely rest, respiration is going on. So they're active vegetative growth. Uh, they're producing those VOCs. And, you know, you have competition that will produce those secondary metabolites that lead to uh, MVOCs production. But at the same time, you know, some of the substrates, the components in the substrates, you know, different binders and fire retardants and things like that, which you know, we haven't investigated all this stuff in science. Really, you know, we need to really get up on understanding these interactions between the, the fungi and building materials. But those types of things may be act as, as an attack on a fungus, and they perceive it as that and produce VOC. So it's really a mixture, combination of these things that's most likely going on. Uh, definitely you have to have that active vegetative growth, though. Okay. And uh, that, that's one of the key factors. You may have also, you may have, if you're in a really damp environment, you may have mites and other things that are feeding on the insects and or feeding on the fungi, on the vegetative part of it. And that will really, you know, a lot of these things were produced to kill in the, quote, evolutionary uh, line of fungi, if you look back, there's theory there that says that a lot of these secondary metabolites are have insecticidal activity. Hmm. So they're they're trying to ward off the the theory is they're trying to ward off the attacking insects that are trying to it's it's a big game of you know, reproduction, I guess. Yes, it is, and that's one thing. I mean, that's a good food source. You think about it. There's a lot of grazers out there. You know, um, mites and well, well, you think you commented on the thing, Joe, with the pill bug thing on the uh, one of the uh, AIHA uh, discussion boards, yeah. and, uh, and then they're all grazing on this fungi, they're looking for as, for as, a, as a food source. Well, they have to protect themselves. You can't have something eating up all your all your leaves and expect to be able to produce uh, fruits. You know. Huh. Interesting. I'm glad I asked, Cliff. Uh, go ahead, Joe. Okay. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about. Uh, inspection for mold and and what are some of the other um, I mean we we talked a little bit about spore trap air samples and by the way while we're on that subject do, does your lab do analysis of spore traps as well yes we do okay. we do quite a few spore traps definitely we uh, run a lot of spore trap analysis and I'm I'm certain you probably do like tape lift analysis and uh, I guess culture bowls uh, tape. We do the whole gamut. Anything microbiology, any any technique, we're basically using it for our clients and based on their needs. Okay, and and I think you know we may skip over the shortcomings of the sport traps. I know we've talked about that quite a bit on the show, and and you've already mentioned that you know 
it's I guess we could just say it is a tool in the toolbox, and there's times when they can be very helpful. Um, other times when maybe they're not going to help as much, and you have to take the right number, and then you've got all the lab variations and et cetera. Is there any one in particular that you think maybe we should mention that um, I haven't? technique uh, that we should talk about or well, with respect to some of the sampling that's going on right now what uh, what are what, what is one of the kind of limitations that that you wish people would uh, maybe respect a little bit more or understand a little bit more either with you know sport traps or tape lifts or you know more of the predominant types of sampling you see out there now before we get into the more specialized stuff you're working on well I think one of the things from the lab standpoint that we see a lot of and it's uh, you know, basically, it comes down to to just technique, and that's uh, you know, if you're doing wall checks, you got to be very careful about overloading sport traps. And even if you're if you're in a dirty environment, you can only collect for so long without overloading. We get a lot of debris on that spore trap. It causes you know, it makes it more difficult to see the spores when you're looking at them for the for the technician or the analyst doing that. So one of the things that we like to stress is that you, you know, pay attention to the particulate matter in your environment, especially with wall checks. Um, when you're doing that, you, you can't take a five-minute wall check because we're not going to see anything on there. It's going to be just you know caked up with debris. So those are one of the things, and you know, I guess along the same lines of tape lift, you just got to be cognizant uh, of where you're taking your sample and is there a lot of dirt and debris around that because that can really influence the analysis you need you need to think about those types of things when you're taking those samples okay and, and let me ask another quick one on before we move on to some of the more um newer in- information i i noticed in your cv that you had done a i don't remember if it was a, a presentation or a paper on how should home inspectors report mold and i'm kind of i want to kind of take that to a different level um prior to even an indoor environmental professional taking a sample and verifying whether something is mold or not. What do you suggest people call that when you're kind of suspicious, you've got this kind of suspect material there? What what kind of wording do you recommend? Well, it's a really call it suspect material, you know, suspect mold. And uh, the thing about suspect mold is if you're going to call it that, as a home inspector, you need to be taking, you need to take a sample of that and get it to the lab because you'll be out, and you know how, if, I'm sure you guys work with a lot of home inspectors, and you understand their point of view. It's when they're out in the field, you know, they're being asked a lot of questions and things like that by homeowners, and if they see something, they want to call it suspect mold, they need to take a sample of it and get it to the lab, because it, we've seen situations where they call it mold, and they're not, they don't follow up with a test, and then they get in trouble because somebody else comes in. You know, when you say mold, it's going to cause an issue. Uh, especially on the real estate, especially the transaction needs to turn fast. Um, you need to be cognizant of what you're doing and get that to the lab and get it analyzed fast so you can you can verify. You need to say that you're going to verify this if you're if you're going to make that statement. That's one of the keys. I wouldn't go in there and say that looks like mold and not do anything else about it. You need to be prepared to verify if you're going to say it. And let me get one more before we go to halftime. And then on the second half, I'd like to go into a little more detail on the molecular entrapment technology that uh, you've been working with. And I think you developed, and I, that's one of the questions. 
um, at least with respect to doing it for microbiologicals. Anyway, you've got this keen interest in new techniques and technologies and, and trying to determine the amount of biological organisms that are in indoor environments. And I noticed a couple paper on HVAC airstreams. And one of the examples was the development of a rapid fungal mold fluorescence detection probe for microscopic examination. Um, for this particular project, I'm wondering if you could tell us how that came out. And then if you could maybe follow up and tell us about any other new technologies that you think are promising that, um, you know, we're going to be seeing in the near future that people who do this type of work will kind of be looking forward to. Okay. Uh, well, with that technology, I mean, we put the patent in on that, and it worked out pretty good from that standpoint. But uh, And I use it. I use that technology in my laboratory to uh, detect mold spores. I'm doing various experiments and things like that. But we were never able to, I was never, I have not been able today to get the funding to go ahead and push that to the next level. I mean, the idea that I have with that fluorescent detection, which we call, which, which I call mold glow, because uh, it lights the spores up when you're using the fluorescent detector on the other end, um, you know, it would be to have a particle counter, a real-time particle counter that you can use in the field that's actually not just counting particle sizes, but when it counts those sizes, it's telling you the concentration of mold spores in that airstream. That's really what I was going after with that, and just the way the market has been, it's just very hard to find investors to put money in on something like that to be able to build it. It's not that's not a cheap technology to build. You know, it's that's uh, you're talking high-end detector system, and to get that into a situation where we could, you know, have a retail value. Market side for maybe three to five thousand, you're going to have to put it. You know, that's a million dollar project, and just have not been able to get the funding. But the, the the probe I use a lot in the laboratory and other research projects that I have, and actually on on some sites. But it's very specific to what I do. Um, I don't have that's not close to market the tool that I'm talking about, and you know until I get funding for something like that, I don't know that it will be. And when I read this, I kind of thought of a, a couple of technologies that are out there that a lot of our listeners would be familiar with is the you know the atp uh, yeah. detectors and then there's the micrometer is this kind of similar or uh, totally different atp is picking up you know atp is looking at atp which is the basically the energy of life and um usually and that and that goes across all life so if you have bacteria in your Say most of that stuff is swabs. So you have, and I know you can do some air sampling. I know they're working on things like that. But when you have your swab and you take a surface swab, it's everything that's in there that has ATP, so everything that's living at that moment. Dormant spores, the problem with mold is if you're capturing out of the air and you have spores, they're not going to be active. They're in a dormant phase, so you're not going to see that with ATP. It's a big issue. Uh, now, if they're active, like if you're in a crawl space and you have obviously the vegetative mycelium there, you're, obviously you're going to have ATP. Uh, this is the idea with this was I wanted to have something that I can detect just spores, mold spores in the air. So we wouldn't be picking up bacteria. We wouldn't be picking up other things. It would be focused on the spores themselves. That, that was the idea so you can get a spore count out of the air rapidly, a total spore count. You wouldn't, I mean, with you wouldn't break it down into aspergillus or, 
you'd have some idea because you can bend it just like you do a, a regular air sampler or a regular uh, uh, particle counter. You mm -hmm. know, it has the different bends for different particle sizes. So you can bend it based on particle size, but then you would also know the number of bolt spores in that bin. So if you're into the, you know, the, the one to five micrometer range, you can say, I have X amount of spores. They're likely to be the small round spores, aspergillus, penicillium types. That, that's really where I was going with that. You kind of led into a, a text question I have here, and I'm going to do this one real quick, and then we have to stop and thank our sponsors. But they asked if you recommend screening in larger buildings with, say, like a laser particle counter to help them determine where they might want to follow up with other types of sampling, such as spore trap sampling. Well, it's not a bad idea. And I know a lot of, I know a lot of uh, mold inspectors. I know a lot of CAHs. Uh, that do that and you know the thing is whenever you're picking up especially in that bin size that smaller bin size that you would expect to find the uh, mold spores when you have high concentrations you know that's that's doesn't say it's there for sure it could be obviously it could be any other particle in the environment uh, but it gives you a bit of a reason and to want to go ahead and look at that it's, it's it's like in the back of your head well it can help you out it can help you locate sampling locations, I would say. Okay. I, I, I don't think that's a bad idea to do that. I think it's actually a good idea. I've got another text, but Susan, let me get to that uh, toward the end of the show here, and let's stop for just a minute. Uh, Dr. Sobeck, we'll be right back with uh, Dr. Edward Sobeck. We're going to talk a little bit in the second half about the molecular entrapment technology and qualitative polymerase chain reaction and all that fun stuff, but give us about uh, a minute and a half. We'll be right back. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. 
And I want to make sure we add Indoor Environment Connections, the online newspaper for the IEQ industry, also because they were a big part of the reason we were able to uh, find this information and do this interview with Dr. Sobek. He did a great article in there on the molecular entrapment technology, and that's where we're headed right now. Dr. Sobek, do we have you back on the line? Okay. Great. I'm here, Jeff. I'm here. Let's talk a little bit. Just give us a little background on this molecular entrapment technology. Let me ask a quick question. Um, before we get into the details of how you capture the particulate, once it's captured, you're analyzing this through, is it uh, PCR, polymerase, chain reaction? Is it MSQPCR? Can you kind of um, give us a little bit of a better understanding on that? Okay. Um the molecular entrapment was designed to capture, and the backside analysis is designed to be a molecular analysis. Now that can include a lot of different things, and you could have, you know, antibody analysis. You could do PCR, MSQ PCR. You know, there's a whole variety of different molecular techniques. Uh, you can do metagenomics. There's a lot of different things that we can do on that. Um, the backside, so it's not, it's not restricted to uh, just PCR or MSQPCR. It's a lot of a lot of options after you capture it, and it's really designed to be able to be processed through, you know, molecular work streams. That's the key. Um, so we're not going down a micros microscopic work stream. We're going down a molecular work stream, which is quite a bit different. Okay, and then. Can you comment on ERMI, the environmental – I had a text actually from – well, actually an email from a listener. You, by the way, you got a lot of interest. <laughs> I, had, I probably had more emails from listeners about this interview uh, than I have in quite a while. And one of the questions was ERMI, the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index, and I think it's because you are using a DNA-based you know, uh, analysis – and they wanted to know what your thoughts were on ERMI and if you were kind of using the same, I guess, uh, or a similar analysis, which you kind of just answered. Yeah. The, so right now, the, the best set that we got of probes uh, for the fungi uh, is the MSQPCR probe set, which is used in the ERMI index, you know, so the ERMI analysis. Uh, the ERMI is specific for dust, though, you know, collecting with a... Uh, in a three-by-six area in two locations of the house and uh, a dust sample that's processed. And it's actually taken from the, the extract is taken from the dust. So, but it uses the same primer set, the same primer and probe set. And that, that's where we are right now. But the thing about that is that yeah, that's a, and that is a very good probe and primer set because what you, what you find is that you know, the EPA was pretty much on when they were looking for these water intrusion molds. What they chose, uh, I think that's a very good set, initial set that Dr. Vesper and uh, Dr. Hoagland developed because, you know, nine times out of ten, when you have moisture issues inside, humidity, water intrusion, et cetera, uh, some of those guys, some of the species are going to show up. And not all of them, but some of them. And it'll be different for, you know, different environments. But it, it's pretty much it's a good catch-all. Uh, there's some limitations to it though, because like it is limited to 36 different species, and uh, some of the problems with that is there's 
species outside of there. There's Aspergillus and there's Penicillium outside of that, and you know a lot of other different species that are in homes and can be problematic that won't show up, so you miss them. And that is that that's part of the key issue. And you know, I like to see MSQPCR as the first step. You know, there's new technologies. Uh, some of the stuff I'm working on with uh, Dr. Green at the CDC uh, is going into the area of metagenomics in which metagenomics can allow us to not have to worry about these probes and primer sets, these specific probes. It's going to be something that's going to allow us to go out there and see everything. So all the fungi and be able to have a, uh, you know, a rank order analysis of the important things in the environment. So this is the beginning. That's how I see it. And molecular entrapment is just a tool for a better tool for capturing spores. That's that's what it is, and it's made for downstream molecular. Whatever those molecular analysis turn out to be in the future, I don't know. Uh, but we have a good starting point with MSQPCR and the standard PCR, QPCR that is. Now we had Dr. James Scott on. I want to say uh, it may be more than a year ago now, but it may well have been you know nine months or so ago, and he talked a little bit about metagenomics and some of the things that are, you know, on the horizon here. Um, I'm just curious, you you talked to another doctor, Dr. Green, about similar issues. I guess you probably are familiar with James Scott. How close are we to this? You know, are we a year away, five years away, ten years away? We're close. Uh, the, uh, the Atlanta mold study that we're doing with the CDC right now and Dr. Green, um, we're doing metagenomics on it. So we have that study set up in which we're looking at, uh, we're doing standard, uh, the MSQPCR. We're also doing uh, viable culturing. And from the same subset of collection for the MSQPCR, we're splitting that. And part of that goes to the CDC NIOSH in West Virginia with Dr. Green's group to run metagenomics on it. So we're, we're starting to put this together. And, uh, it's going to be very interesting. So I don't think we're too far away. I think we're, you know, to run these analysis, maybe a year, maybe less than a year, actually, to be able to get them up and running in the lab. I don't think that's going to be a big deal. I think we're on it. It's just going to be, when you deal with that type of, when you see everything in the environment, it's going to come down to uh, things like, all right, we have 400 species, just say that. Say we have 400 species and, you know, 98% of them are just one spore or equivalent, we'll say that, do they mean anything? So there's going to be some, there's going to be, you know, how we cut the data and how we deal with the data. So it's going to be a data issue more than actually the, uh, the data, solving the data problem will be harder than uh, getting the assays developed because they're really already there. So we already have the assays. You're doing this in the Atlanta Mold Project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, the Nana Mold Project uh, came about in that we wanted to, uh, it comes back to what we're thinking about with, you know, we have MSQPCR at the beginning. Do we have, in different regions of the country, do we have different subsets of molds? Well, you can't use the PCR to determine that because you're limited to the 36 probes, right? Right. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to go, let's go into Atlanta, let's compare it to the QPCR, uh, and let's see what other things we find. Maybe we're going to find a subset in the southeast, because we want to do these studies in different locations. Uh, 
Dr. Green, I can't go into that because it's his data, but he's going to be publishing the data on some of the stuff that he's found from Kansas City. So he's going to have Kansas City out. We want to do, we're going to do Atlanta, and then we have funding to do New York. So we're going to get up into that northeast region. And we like to do this in multiple places around the country and really come up with ideas. Do we have regional differences? Should we be using different probe sets? Maybe it could be whittled down instead of 36 reuse. If you're in Atlanta, just pick these 10, you know, in this southeast region, it's going to cover most of the things. Uh, these are all scientific questions that we want to answer. And we're trying to find out, uh, you know, is there region-specific molds that are more problematic, more prevalent than in other areas? Uh, and, you know, how, how do we build the assays to account for those and also try to get the uh, – try to – through the whole thing, I'm trying to think get costs down on this PCR because one of, that's one of the main for the you know the average inspector. Uh, that's one of the big hurdles is the expense of it. So we're we're trying to work all that and have a better understanding and maybe develop different probe sets, et cetera, um, with this uh, animal study getting started on it. Well, you bring up a very important point and one that I, I've had several questions on, and that is the cost. And we'll. Maybe we'll go into that a little bit more in a moment, but I'm just before we do, let me let me ask one more question um, because you mentioned one spore equivalent, and I had a question from a listener, and and it's can the limit of detection of one spore equivalent be too low? Well, from my standpoint, uh, you can never be too low. Uh, the way I use these tools is. You know, if we see, if we have one spore equivalent detection, we know something's there. So we know it's there. It tells us that species is present. So that's important. Um, now, if it's a species, say it's Aspergillus restrictus, you have one spore equivalent, is that going to be an issue? Most likely not, uh, if you find that indoors. Now, if you have a spore equivalent of Stachybotrys, though, Tartarum, that starts to get you thinking that maybe it could be a problem, you know, we may, and that's where it is. It comes down, it almost gets sliced by the species, you know. Uh, it gives, you got to think about what species you're dealing with and how potentially hazardous that species is. If you see some, if you see low concentrations of Aspergillus fumigatus and you're in a home where somebody uh, is going through chemotherapy, well, that's going to raise a flag and that's going to cause a, you know, it may cause you to work harder to look for a source. Is there potential sources that coming from the inside somewhere? Even if it's low concentrations, it could still be very dangerous to the person in the home. So I don't think it can go too low. Okay, you you led into another text, or actually this one was uh, emailed to me, and we're talking about you find a little bit of Aspergillus fumigatus, and you've got someone that's immune compromised, they're on chemotherapy. Um, and obviously that could have been brought into the home via, say, for instance, the soil on someone's shoes. And, and their question was, how much fungi matter? How much of this material that we're finding in these dust samples, for instance, do you think is brought in from outdoors, from you know, on people's shoes, et cetera, versus? And how do we differentiate between the stuff that was brought in from outdoors and the stuff that's actually growing indoors? We, it all came from outdoors originally. I recognize that. Well, I think the ERMI gets good, uh, gets to that really well when you're doing the ERMI because, you know, you have it split into the two uh, type 1 and, or group 1 and group 2 
organisms in those group two are more likely to be from the outside. And you see that if you go and take sample, uh, dust samples, uh, uh, say when you walk in on the floor mat, you're going to see those type two organisms really high. I mean, those ones from the outside. So you get an idea from that if those, if that part of that that type two groups are really high, you have more things that are being brought in. So you can actually judge a home based on how much traffic, based on looking at that type of data, those analyses, to determine whether you have a lot of being tracked in or not being tracked in. And I don't know if you can say, you know, it would be very difficult because people will have all kinds, you have, you have dogs and cats and things like that. You obviously know that more outdoor sports are being brought in if these things are going in and out of the house. Kids, well, I have two boys at home, and I know they bring tons of dirt into the house, and they're bringing mold spores, you know, send my oldest son out to turn the compost heap he's and he doesn't take his shoes off like he's supposed to and uh we probably brought a ton of aspergillus fumigatus into the house so you know do you have potted plants around there you it's not you got to start asking questions specifically to that environment when you want to start you know really break that down or you're getting a lot from the outside or the inside do they leave the windows open or is everything closed on hvac and heated all year long you know those types of things right Right. I've got one more quick text from a listener. If one spore of stacky is a, pot- I'm going to say a potential problem. They didn't put the word potential in there. And I think you meant it was a potential problem. And it's easier to find one spore equivalent using PCR. Are we finding more problems or just more stacky spores? That's a tough one. Well, you know, I go looking through all the MSQ PCR data. There's not a lot of times when we're seeing just one stacky spore. Um, you know, when it does come up, whenever you have one stacky spore, I, it's always an issue. Uh, and always makes you think harder about that project and maybe want to do a little bit more work. That, you know, that's really what it comes down to. There's, I, I don't think there's any yes or no answer here. Um, it just it sets off a flag, and you need to think about that in the situation you're dealing with. Gotcha. That's, how, that's what I do. And every, every situation is different. Well, that's... Yeah, I, I, don't, I can't provide a straight there's no simple solution for that understood understood hey let's go back to the molecular entrapment technology could you just explain to people i mean and and i urge you to go to the ie connection articles folks probably before you listen to this interview but after would be fine could you just do a, a real quick description of how that works and then i have a few specific questions on that sure i'll i'll give a quick breakdown on how that goes basically uh molecular entrapment you have a a fibrous matrix, and on that fibrous matrix, and it's it's about it's one one and a half one one and a half millimeters thick. So to mold spore, that's that's really thick. I mean, that's a lot of distance, right? And so yeah, this matrix is three dimensional, so you have to flow through it. So it's not like a flat filter where you, or a spore trap where you're hitting a surface and sticking to it. You're actually moving through a matrix, and on that, on the fibers in the matrix, we have proteins, these sticky proteins that are coating that, coating the fibers. And spores are extremely aerodynamic. If you go into the plant pathology literature, that's the best place to find out about aerodynamics of spores, because they've been studying them for years on understanding how you have spores that get on, you know, plants and how they travel and cause infection, et cetera. But anyways, all these spores, that's why we have all unique shapes, a lot of unique shapes. And uh, what happens is the idea is, so the proteins are 
low molecular weight. So you think of the proteins as a little bit of weight. And the idea is as the spore comes through, if I can throw some weight on the backside of an alternaria spore, you know, I'm not going to get into the molecular units here, but put a glob of weights on the back of it, that all of a sudden it loses its, its uh, aerodynamic capability and it starts to tumble. And then as it tumbles, it picks up more and more of these sticky uh, proteins and eventually it's entwined in that matrix and it's not going to get out the other side. It's stuck. Um, and once it's stuck, we don't have to remove the spores. If you're doing molecular work, all you got to do is if you want DNA, you got to crack the spores open and drain, them, drain the DNA out like eggs. If you're going to do antibody work, you can do it right on that filter matrix. You know, if you want to do different types of Western blots, there's all kinds of stuff you can do from this, uh, like I said earlier, on the molecular side of it. It's really set up for molecular analysis. Well, now, I think you just kind of explained this, but let me, let me confirm my thought. Um, a lot of people would ask, and I had a, actually a question from a listener before the show, why not just use a filter to capture yeah. these particles? We tried. We tried. I mean, <laughs> we started off with spore traps, and uh, you could not get any recovery. And I talked to Zephon about something. They had a, you know, they had that, uh, I can't remember which one it was, but it was the one you can wash off, you know, the uh, adhesive. You guys probably remember that. I don't know if they're even still selling that. but uh, No, I don't think, but they could be. <laughs> and we, then we tried every single type of filter. I, I don't know how many different filters I tried to work with. It's just when you have a two-dimensional surface, you know, that you're just either the spores, the, the amount of spores you collect on that is just low. I mean, the ability for this, I, I don't know, that's just that's the case it is. When, you, when we've stepped up to the three-dimensional and we've made it sticky with these proteins, you know, that adhere to spores, it just, we hit it with that. It was crazy. But we tried all kinds of stuff before that. And it just happened to be, you know, I was working with some other things. And I was like, well, why can't I try this on this and this? And it came together after about three years of work. And uh, it just worked out for us. And we started going with that three-dimensional matrix. And with the sticky proteins, uh, had a lot of success in capturing. And we, we had a lot of early editions of that that didn't work out very well but we we worked on it and honed it in and got it pretty tight now all right let me get a couple more and then i got do you have to run right after this can you stay a little longer i can stay all right this is fascinating to me and i know dr wow has probably a bunch of things to ask but or to comment on now i have another question that came in before the show and i also noticed a text that just came in what is your sample collection period and, and what flow rate using this technique it's 10 minutes at 15 liters per minute. Okay. And then what is the cost per sample w when these are analyzed? And I, is this your proprietary um, process and uh, the technology or the um, uh, the capture mechanism? Is that proprietary? The capture capture mechanism is proprietary. Uh, so we have a patent on the patent pending on that. Um, the analysis. I mean, it's we do the analysis now for them. I mean, we're selling the M traps and we do them out of the lab. Uh, but the analysis could be done by anybody. It's just right now that we we're not giving M traps out to any other labs to do, to do the analysis. So um, from that standpoint, we're really the only game in town for doing it right now. 
I see. And what's the cost ballpark idea? That was another question that people asked. Those are the, the M-trap is uh, 175 a sample. 175 per sample. Does that include the, the M-trap itself? M-traps are $10 a piece. 10 bucks each. Okay, good. All right. I think we got a couple of the, the key points that people asked. Let me make sure. Cliff, did you have anything you wanted to add before I move on to the roundup? Um, I just wanted to get a comment on, you know, for remediators in terms of, you know, how would, uh, well, can we just sample after remediation to confirm that a, a good remediation has been performed? So just, po- great, you know, question. just post-testing as opposed to pre and post. Yes, you could do that with the, uh, the M-trap technology in that uh, you're going to see, I mean, if you have high concentrations of these different species present after they've gone in, you know, the water intrusion molds are still present. They haven't okay. passed. We're going to fell them on that remediation. Okay. That's, so that's uh, it's, it works fairly well for that, and it also works for monitoring containments, too, especially if you're in a hospital situation. Um, and I've used it in residential for monitoring containments in and outside of a containment to see if your containment's working right. Fair enough. And, uh, well, well let, me, let me do this one more question, and then we'll go to the roundup. Um, I had another one that was sent in, and Cliff kind of covered what could or should pre- and post-tested, what could and should be pre-post-tested uh, that would indicate a successful remediation? You know, I'd like to get your general thoughts on that. I mean, obviously you're, you're partial to the M-trap, but I'm curious, is there other um, technologies that you recommend if, say, for instance, the budget doesn't allow? You know, let me ask you that first. How many? Oh, yeah, we, yeah, I mean, you got to do what your client can handle. Um, I mean, it comes down to their budget, and, you know, you Tell them about the te- best technology because it's. In, I think when you start using the advanced tools, you start to get comfortable with them. You're like, this is what I want to use every time, but sometimes you can't because it's, the costs won't allow it. And uh, you need to know how to understand spore traps, how to interpret spore traps, and how to use them correctly. So you know, if you're doing it, it comes down to your tools, what you're using on your posts and pre-testing. And if you're using spore traps, you need to be able to interpret spore traps from post, you know, from pre-testing the post if you're following through that method and be able to make a recommendation on whether you got, whether they, the remediator has hit his point or not, that you're satisfied with passing that. How many so, samples would you take if you were using the M, I, is it M-trap, I believe is the, the term, how many samples would you recommend on a normal you know, remediation of a, let's say, a basement and, a, you know, basic, you know, ranch-type home? Oh, ranch-type home, let's see, uh, say we're doing a basement. So we're say, so let's just say it was, we'll go ahead and just theoretically say that it's, uh, the basement has been contained and we're going to try to clear the basement, right, after they've done mold remediation. Okay. So from the outside of the house, I would use the thing. The great one of the other things about the M trap is you won't overload it. Uh, so you, I like to go out and take a sample, the 15 liters per minute for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. in at least three different locations around the house. So you capture variations in the spore, spore concentrations outside. It gives you a better picture of what's going on to make an indoor outdoor comparison. 
And then, you know, you can take the, the sample in the basement area and inside the containment if the containment's still up, um, which it should be before you're going to clear it. Uh, mm. <laughs> and you, uh, so you're talking two samples there. But if you're in a house and you're doing, if you're doing an investigation and with this, and you want to use this technology, you know it's expensive. There's other ways you can do things too, and even in commercial buildings, especially in commercial buildings, you may want to subsample. So you block parts of the house off. So maybe you'll do the first floor with just one M trap, second floor with one M trap, um, and have an outside. So you can you can subsample with it. You can take as many subsamples as you want uh, on these things. All we need to know is the total volume, obviously. And subsampling can reduce costs quite a bit. Uh, it depends on what your question. You may use, you know, bring an M-trap in. You want to have some molecular data, DNA data, because that's going to be important from a health aspect. You may do four or five spore traps also. You know, it depends on, it's not, like you said earlier on, it's a tool in a toolbox. Everything is a tool in a toolbox, and you need to be able to use them correctly. And we're learning, you know, every day learning more about how to put these things together and use them together run over about 10 minutes i want to alert people and dr sobeck i and if dr wow has enough comments it might be a little more than that <laughs> we'll see all right let's get dr dietrich wow on the line here oh good god i have two pages of uh, notes over here <clears throat> it doesn't matter let's start uh, uh, with uh, from the beginning anyway i like your re uh, remark you always learn uh, something from every job you're doing and in fact i have a job right over here on my desk i shall refer to it air samples i'm still a fan of air samples even though on the job that i will refer to later on i took wall checks you know, I mean, if it's behind the wall, I don't care as much as it is in the air that you are breathing when you go to bed and you're exposed to it, whatever, 12 or 14 hours a day. Uh, so that is the hidden mold. I still have not been able, even though I used it, I have not been able to make any heads or tails out of taking a humidity measurement on last Friday in the place which I investigated. In fact, it was easy to remember. It was 70 and 70, 70% 70 relative humidity, 70 degrees. Uh, what does it mean to me? Absolutely nothing. Um, so that is all right. I, 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 I liked I liked your remark on the VOCs. If you, the nose is, well, in fact, the nose is really the only instrument in the whole world that is available to measure, to sense, uh, to, 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 to see, to, to uh, uh, measure, not to measure, but to yeah. recognize uh, uh, smells. It's, it's a damn good instrument. It's the best. I mean, the, I was without about it. I work with a group up at Quantico, the FBI, and we did some work. And I know they're working on it hard. They, you know, they do a lot of clandestine uh, discovery of bodies, and they want to have a mechanical nose, a sniffer. But you know, the the dog has been <laughs> the dog has been much better than anything they have developed so far. Yeah, if I could train my cat, uh, the cat has the same the same uh, sense of uh, uh, smell as a dog, but my cat, um, he goes out during the night and he comes in and sleeps during the day and he eats. <laughs> a dog is a heck of a lot easier to train. Yeah, they are. 
We went to the wall checks. I went into, in fact, literally, this is two weeks ago, and I got all the, re- the samples back from the laboratory, incubated and, and wipes and all of that. And, uh, you know, I was in, in two rooms, and I will not tell you where, it doesn't matter. And, um, uh, and I took some air samples, which were, quote, all right. Uh, not significantly different from what was the outside. Windows and doors were open, so there was a good reason for that. The wall check was completely different, and I knew there was something behind it because I put a moisture meter. You mentioned that damn good instrument to have in your pocket. And uh, the wall board was, quote, wet. It was in the red region, and... Uh, I drilled a hole in it and I took a sample, which, by the way, was completely different from what I found in the air, which kind of is very interesting. Particle counts, I'm going down the list here, particle counts uh, versus mold. Particle counts are fantastic. I know how these instruments work. I I worked with one of the first ones ever developed 40 years ago. Uh, It is something... But if you were to take a particle count in my office here right now, uh, you, would, you would get a ton of particles. You know it and I know it. Right. I have no idea what they are. I have hunches of what they can be, but I don't know. Uh, I also took different samples in different countries and different areas. Interestingly, my experience from Europe the Virgin Islands, and basically the Pittsburgh area, a little bit of Ohio, you know, no major differences there. Uh, interestingly, there was not a significant difference. I wasn't in New Zealand. I'd have, I will be looking probably at some uh, samples from Australia. Never seen data in China. I don't know whether anybody takes any samples over there. Well, I don't know. That's, that's a- do you have any? Have you seen any worldwide sampling results, Doctor Sobek? Is that something that you run into? No, I, I've done stuff in different areas of the world too, but um, you know, it's really been specific for what I'm working on, specific projects. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm not, I'm not real familiar with, uh, you know, looking at bioaerosols, specifically the molds at different regions of the world. Yeah. I, there's. Go ahead. I think there's some interesting stuff. There is some interesting literature, and this goes back to uh, travel from continents. I think its dispersion is pretty interesting. If you go into the ag literature, and you know, I I have my master's in plant pathology, so I still have a great interest in that area. But uh, you know, the uh, like the big seed companies that breed. So we have a lot of diseases that come into the country and can cause considerable crop loss. And, you know, that's a big monetary issue, obviously. A lot of money lost. Well, the big seed companies, they monitor these fungi, these fungal pathogens around the world. So the interesting thing is they can, they know when something's going to, they'll be, they have monitoring in Africa, and they know when something gets to a threshold that it's going to be enough to escape that continent and move to South America. So they can start breeding for genetics five, six years advance of the uh, of the pathogen. So they're ready. It's all, the genes are already in the plants by the time they get here for resistance. Hmm. So 
I think some of that flow, and you know, that has to be going on with indoor air too. We have, oh, absolutely. We have, and we yeah. know that, that that is going on. Uh, well, in Pennsylvania, we got the sulfur dioxide from power plants in Ohio. Guess why? There is basically a westerly wind. Yes. After Chernobyl, what? A couple of days later, they found radioactive materials in the air all over the world, which they had never, ever seen before. And I think it was <laughs> it was a good guess that it came from Chernobyl. <laughs> the next one is, again, I could do, I could take 20 samples in my house, and I'm sure I'm going to find um, uh, mold spores. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, I personally, I would not like to get... Uh, exposed to cyclosporin, and I forgot which mold, which mushroom produces it. Now, I still collect uh, uh, mushrooms. I still eat them, and I learned that when I was a kid 50, 60 years ago in Germany. And fortunately, only seven or six or seven percent of all mushrooms, those are the true mushrooms that you see outside, not the mold. Uh, are only poisonous, and I know the good ones from the bad ones, and there are a couple of fantastic ones in West Virginia. Anyway. Yes, yes uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of foraging also. So, uh, Oh, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. So, as I said, I, uh, I don't want to be uh, uh, my immune system. I wouldn't, and, yeah, there are poisonous Poisonous mushrooms, the one that people look at mushrooms, yeah. and there are nasty molds like uh, molds which produce cyclosporin. I wouldn't want to be uh, uh, exposed to that. Stachybotrys, to me, it doesn't bother me at all. It got good publicity when New York uh, started all that stuff over there with Stachybotrys removal. And I said, oh, we were wrong. It's really mold. But anyway... I don't care. I like the, uh, the, the aero, <laughs> I heard the wonderful word, one of my favorites, the aerodynamic behavior of mold spores, and we mentioned it a little bit, it can be trans, it can, can be, uh, mold spores can be transported by thousands of miles. There's no doubt in my mind. The filter, Joe had a good question. He said, why don't we use a filter? Yes, you have a filter, and now you have either a, a one-inch filter or a 37-inch filter, and I don't care what it is. I use Teflon. I use polypropylene. I use them all. Yes, you will collect them. The problem, not the problem, well, it is a problem. The problem is they are all over the place. Now you have to scan this whole filter, I did that when I looked at coal dust and fibers and uh, so on. So, therefore, we had the, quote, spore trap. Why is the spore trap uh, better uh, or easier to use for the analyst? Because we are concentrating the spores, not over a huge filter, but a small area. And you mention it very carefully. Yes, once in a while you overload it with debris. But we're also <laughs> and you can't missing see the forest. But data, we're also uh, missing because I mean, of the trees. Data, but the point is, with I believe, with the molecular entrapment, is that we're missing a lot of particles, a lot of mold spores with the spore trap. Is that yeah, the, with, yeah, with yes, sure. Uh, let us assume that some people are right, 
and I take, uh, let's say there are a hundred. Some people say there are a thousand. Some people say there are ten thousand. Some people say there are a million different kinds of uh, uh, mushrooms, molds in this world. Let's assume that. Can you identify every one of them? Heck no. It's impossible. It's well, absolutely I impossible. I don't think that's the point, Dr. Sobek. What, what, would you explain what you find when comparing this, comparing different types of technology in capturing the, the particles in the air, the, the spores? Well, with molecular entrapment, you have it's, – it's, it's inverse of what you're looking at with the uh, spore trap. You have a huge amount of surface area, and we actually – we're putting those proteins on our surface area is massive, and you have, you know, 1.2 millimeters of that, and we don't have to scan it. I mean, it would be impossible to scan. You couldn't scan down through and see the spores and the fibers. I mean, it would, it would, right. technicians would be jumping out the windows. Uh, <laughs> but you just take that whole thing, and we just, that goes, that's why it was developed for molecular analysis. We could take that, and we pull all the DNA out of that filter that was captured. So everything we pull out. And that's the beauty of it. So you have massive amount of surface area now to capture. So that really runs your capture efficiency up high compared to spore trap. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yo. Most of the filters that I know of uh, uh, you know, for uh, air sampling, they are 99.99999% efficient. You may, you know, one of them may go by the side. Who cares? You know. Uh, but there are wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, millipore filters, and uh, and uh, they they will collect the material. And now you have it all. Now you got to desorb it. That is one of the questions: Do you desorb all of them, or are some small spores still stuck in the pores of the filter? Because every filter has a pore. So those are all questions, and uh, I have no problem with that. Every measurement that ever, ever was made in this world and will be, I don't say that very often, and every measurement that ever will be made until doomsday, there is an error associated with it. There's no you doubt. Always have it. some error. Always have some error. You can't get Always it. an error there, and I have no problem with that. If I know what the error is, it's not an right. error. You need to be able to understand your error. That's the thing. If you don't, That's right? If I know what it is, it's not an error well let's let I, me uh go ahead dr sobek you had another comment no i i, I was just saying you know that that's what we just said there was about things getting stuck in those filters and then, you know that may be part of the reasons that we were not we didn't have good efficiency of extraction from those types of filters which really probably which really led me to design of something novel you know something new so we don't have to deal with pores and things like that. It's just a new new way to capture things. That's really what I, you know, the, just the technology was out there. Even though it was 99% efficient at capturing something on a surface, it didn't work for spores. I see. Let me let me wrap this up because we're way over, guys. And um, I have a question that I'm hoping will lead to another session because a, a listener that I have a lot of respect for emailed this to me earlier, and he said endotoxin, endotoxin detection and application in IEQ studies. He wanted, wanted you to comment on that, and um, hopefully that will lead into another session and discussion with you. Well, the endotoxin, um, you know... I don't use endotoxin all that often in indoor environmental situations. Um, 
I use it more in a specifics uh, pro, for projects. Like I, I was on a situ, I was in a uh, brought in as an expert on a uh, pharmaceutical case where there was endotoxin issues that cause problems for a certain number of patients. And it, I, I traced all that back to a water system that was supposedly working correctly, but you had bacteria growing in there. And, you know, the endotoxins are in those gram-negative walls. And uh, so, I, you know, I, you know, if you have animals in the house, I know dogs are having dogs, or you have more likelihood of high, higher endotoxin concentrations. And if you look in the AICGH bioaerosols book, there's some threshold levels for endotoxins. I mean, there is information on that. What you, you know, you can do those analyses. Um, multiple labs offer the endotoxin analysis, and uh, so I'm not. I don't use it that often, but there's some cases that sometimes you need to use it. I uh, guess what we're very... leading into is like the the post remediation, or at least some way of evaluating um, other types of indoor environmental quality problems specifically with the type of thing that Cliff dealt with for many, many years. And that's, you know, water damage where you've got toilet overflows and backflow sewers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I don't know if you're doing anything along those lines. Any, we like to do the, uh, you know, the coliforms. We do a lot of coliform work that way. And, uh, you know, that's a simple swab test in which we can give you positive and negative and even identify some of the key species like E. coli present or not. So, uh, you know, I would, if I'm doing, if I have a black water issues, I'm not usually, I mean, it's kind of a last resort to go to endotoxin. I'm usually going with uh, coliform analysis on the front end of that. Okay. Okay. And that's just a uh, positive or negative? I mean, it's there or it's well, you not? Can do, it depends on what you want to do. We can do positive and negative. We also to quantify. So, if you need to, if you're looking, if you're, if the scope of your work calls for a certain percentage decrease in coliforms, you know, it depends on how you write your scope, or, you know, a lot of things are just plus minus. Like well water is definitely a plus and minus. You don't want any present in your well water. Right. Um, that type of testing and uh, other situations. You know, if you're in a medical situation, a lot of times it's a zero tolerance. Uh, but other times, you know, we worked in the park. This big parking garage, the city's water uh, backed up with a sewer system. The whole parking garage was for sewage. And uh, we had to set a threshold. Gotcha. Because you're not going to get all that out. We did pretty darn good. I mean, our threshold, we were way below our threshold. We were happy about that. What the remediator did and some of the technology they were using uh, was great. But, um, you know, it depends on your job, what gotcha. you need to scope is. Maybe on another show we talk about endotoxin. I uh, uh, expose guinea pigs to endotoxins. <laughs> uh, good God, that is now 20 years ago, 25 years ago. All published. I had a student, Ella Kani, and uh, we use actually cotton dust uh, with, to which uh, cotton workers are exposed. And one of the active ingredients, plus a ton of others, are endotoxins. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, we uh, measured those, which is not very easy to measure, but it can be done. And I have no idea what is happening today, but 25 years ago, we that was a little tricky. Yeah. Uh -huh. Dr. Sobek, did you have another one, another comment? 
No, I think I'm good, uh, Joe. Right. Uh, well, that's the other question. Is there anything you wanted to add? I mean, we want to thank you for being here. We went over by 20 minutes, which is pretty unusual, but um, it's been great. Yeah, I, I just I just appreciate you guys having me on the show, and I enjoy talking, and it was a lot of fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun to discuss these things, and you know, there's a uh, like I always say, there's a uh, a lot of different werewolves in the mold world, but there's no silver bullet, and uh, I think that's the way it's going to be. We just need to keep developing new technologies, and you know, multiple lines of evidence. It's not just one thing. We need multiple lines of evidence to really make the right decisions for our clients. And before you go, could you give the website for your lab and maybe if you want your email in case any listeners sure. have further questions? Sure. My uh, website is assuredbio.com, and my email is E in my last name. So it's esobeck at assuredbio.com. All right. Dr. Ed Sobeck, thanks so much for joining us today. Had a great time. Look forward to seeing you. I guess I'll see you in Nashville in uh, in the spring. Yeah. Yes, see you in Nashville. At the IAQA conference. I understand you're going to present some some more uh, detail, um, numbers, et cetera, with respect to the, the M, uh, M-TRAP. Well, we're looking at, uh, you know, the M-TRAP is designed to capture all these biologicals. Uh, so we have virus data very successful on the uh, influenza data and we're collecting data on legionella right now because there's really no not a good way to capture legionella out of the air i mean you could do plates but it's very poor recovery and so uh we're going to have some new stuff on uh mtrap for bacteria specifically things that you know people in our industry are dealing with well maybe we can bring you back to talk about that after the conference i'd love to Great. Well, thanks again for joining us, Dr. Ed Sobeck. I also want to thank Dr. Dietrich Wow, our technical director. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Cliff, a good one. Always fun, Joe. All right. And uh, make sure we say thanks to our engineer at the controls, Jessica Lawson. Most importantly, thanks to all our growing group of loyal listeners out there. Had a lot of nice uh, people online, a lot of good comments. Oh, doggone. I have to... You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to email Dr. Sobeck the question that Diane had. I forgot to get that in here uh, about the uh, uh, about going out and working with the kids and um, what their response has been. Have you? They've been very interested in the. Um, you know, you're doing some, I guess, outreach to the schools, etc. Are the kids? Oh yeah, we do that. We do. We have students in the lab that work in the lab from the high, Oak Ridge High School. Every year, such wonderful students, and then we do outreach to the uh, the grade school and the middle school. And just love going over and showing those guys uh, how to work with fungi, and they grow rise up as plates, and they just love it. They, <laughs> it's they fun love it. a lot of fun. That's what the question was, and I know Dr. Wow has been a big advocate of you know getting out, getting this information out to the schools. And there you go, Dieter. We've got one guy that's doing it. That's that's a start, and I'm sure there are others. But uh, Diane, we did get to that question. Thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks to all our listeners for joining us. Please come back next Friday at noon for the next episode of. IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 